I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. You wanted more? Here's season four of the Connor, Connor and Smith, Smith Show. Show. All right. Yeah. I was trying to think of an introduction music for our next guest. Um, which, which... I want to be in America. I was going to say, loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. And loving Natasha Diaz is not a choice. It's who we are here on the Connor and Smith Show. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Hey, hey! Hey there, how are you? Hi, honey, I'm good. Everybody uh, over there, you done with pugs? We are done with pugs. I'm sitting here with my co-host and husband, Matt Connor. Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> Hi, Maddie. The and, one and only Raspy. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And, you know, and, I think, I think, I think Fauci brought, brought, brought that back. Like, wait. <laughs> Ouchie. And then also our, our producer, Ryan Dean Halbrook. Hey, Natasha. What's up? What's up? <laughs> are you in the, are you in the great state of, are you in the Commonwealth of Virginia tonight? I am. I am indeed. That's, so that's so close, yet so far, far away. away. Well, I mean, at least we're closer than we have been, right? I mean, you could have been, you could have been next door and it could have been Timbuktu and it would have felt the same. It's true. Yeah. At least we're in a, a better COVID place. So where are we going to start tonight? We're going to start at uh, Natasha and I are both Capricorns, yes. which means we're loyal, yes. stubborn, and eventually we will get to the top of the mountain and our horns will butt everyone else off. Even if there is no visible, like, we will be, we could climb on like the skinniest, cragless mountainside. And we will find our way up. <laughs> so when when did we meet Natasha Stephen? We we actually saw her before she saw us. Yes. Do you remember where, where that was? Carnival. I don't. I don't think I saw Carnival. I think I saw the Sondheim. Oh yes, the Sondheim celebration. Yeah, we saw Natasha before Natasha saw us. So maybe we should start there. How about that, Natasha? That's pretty cool. Well, we, you know, I worked at the Candy Center and I bought $20 seats, if you can believe it. There, were, there weren't that many to see, I think, four out of the six. Yes. And then one of them was your show, A Little Night Music, and you played the part of Petra? Yes. Um, so let's talk about that experience. Was that, was that your first experience in D.C.? Uh, no. It was... Um... Agamemnon and his daughters. At Arena Stage. At Arena Stage was my first. Gotcha. And that was during, um, that was uh, when the towers fell. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, I had just finished closing Tick, Tick, Boom off Broadway. And yes, Tick, I, Tick, Boom. I was very excited to come here and do 
a Greek tragedy, a real play, like a real play and play, you know, do a Greek, you know, tragedy. And the towers fell and someone crashed into the Pentagon and nobody wanted to see a Greek tragedy. And it was all just like, you know, that was that. Um, it was still, you know, a, a great experience and everything. Um, but still, even irregardless of the fact that like everything stopped for everyone, I think for a while in New York and in uh, DC in terms of like theater, it was still like my first experience in DC was still like the kind of theater that I always dreamed and imagined I'd be doing. And you know, what's funny is that, um, and I think I told this to Steven, um, just recently, I got very secretly, it was very secret. Somebody sent me a pirated version of our last off-Broadway Tick, Tick, Boom. Someone has the audio and it's brilliant. It's brilliant and uh, I'd never heard it. And you can literally hear the Jane Street Theater. And in one of the other, there's several recordings that they gave me. And one of them we were doing, I was doing the speech for the, like the Towers Fund to like, oh, wow. to help raise money for the Towers, like, you know, after the show was over. So, so that's what was happening at that time. And that was my first experience here in DC and I had uh, and and oddly enough I had actually when the actual event happened you want to talk about weird I had taken the train to New York because the next day I was going to start audition auditions behind the table because I was already cast for Urban Cowboy wow Okay, how's that for like a, a mind a mind scramble? Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. So I had so I was in my apartment in New York, about to go down. I had already done one day of auditions. The second day was when the towers fell, so I was not in D.C. anyway. I was in New York and I was doing the auditions for Urban Cowboy, <laughs> reading people to play opposite me, and of course it worked out. You know. It ended up that they started casting, not from me, they started casting from a guy they found because they were just like, I guess no one was mad enough, Matt. I don't know. I think it's no one was mad and they couldn't find anyone mad enough to play opposite me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But then the Sondheim was what, then 2002? 2002, the next year, yeah. So that's when we first saw you singing uh, uh, I will marry the Miller's son. Yeah. So how we we've talked to several other people who were part of the Sondheim celebration. It was like a it was like Sondheim summer camp. Um, how was that? It, it was like the best of times, right? I mean, Sondheim was around. There were brilliant directors, beautiful sets, amazing cast. Like, what was that like being part of that like rarefied air? It's funny. Like, it didn't feel rare. It just felt special. It didn't mm. feel rare. It felt special and it felt like, I guess it must've felt like how the world's fair must've felt like, right? you know, it's just like this, people come from literally all over the planet 
Right. And this is something that actually should happen and it is happening. Yes. Which and cut to they actually should be doing a 20th anniversary of it right now at the Kennedy Center, which they're not. But that's that's another story. Never mind. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they should be, but they're not. Um, it was extraordinary. Um, I still think that anybody listening, they should um, they should really start a fund to to do this concert of this of the Sondheim celebration, at least in New York or wherever wherever you can get this up because it was the lineup was not to be believed. Um, and the, the, the performers, uh, the depth of, and dexterity of, of the performers, it was just, it was just staggering. And it was a special, special moment and it should be celebrated. It should be memorized. It should be remembered and celebrated um, because it was extraordinary. I would, I would urge one step further at not is there like a reunion concert or remounting, but then open it up citywide to smaller companies to do some of the other works as well that weren't touched. Oh yeah. So you could have a citywide celebration, even down to like your smallest companies doing something like, you know, marry me a little or, or things that would be more manageable for a smaller theater. Um, can someone do the frogs? Can someone do Saturday night? Can someone do evening primrose? You know? Oh, yeah. How incredible would that be to just have like a citywide celebration of his work? Well, it would be, be incredible. But just like, you know, it's like, but that's why, that's why Michael Kaiser was so incredible. Yes. Yes. You know, he had that kind of vision. And he also had, you know, he, he had the wherewithal to, to make it actually happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, you know, you, you just have to, you just, I guess at this, it's so weird to me that you have to hope that the next people hold the same things as valuable as, as the, as the latter, last people did. But like, it's for us, it's like, well, Sondheim is the pinnacle. So why wouldn't it be done? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't really understand the disconnect, but it's, um, I will say this, you know, I was, when I was growing up, I thought that, you know, I'll never forget that Sondheim, the picture of Sondheim on the New York Times magazine cover with his little awkward, quirky, crooked smile. And the caption underneath was, you can't bring it back. It's gone. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, I missed it. Well, it turns out that I didn't miss it. That actually my whole career, I actually worked with Sondheim several times mm -hmm. and did things that people dream to do, like an original show, like be on an album. And it's more than I ever thought or even asked for or even wanted. So that was Saturday night, right? Right, right. I mean, I never counted myself as as proficient enough a singer to warrant that kind of thing. But you know, like Fosse, like all those old, like all those old uh, old gypsies, when they would see me in class, they said they would say, "Oh, Fosse would have loved you because you're an actor." Mm -hmm. And and I didn't. It took me a long time to trust and realize that Sondheim's material is the same. It's it is it's done for actors. So, I mean, obviously, if you have incredible vocal dexterity, it's that much more thrilling. 
but it's, you know, it's the reason why I had no idea I had Fosca in me. I didn't even know it was something I should look at, something I should, you know, uh, listen to. It's just, it's just not something that I ever thought was in my was in my path in or like I could put it in my hands because it was never presented as accessible to you there were no examples given no and and also because I just I was never like a musical theater and the this is the irony and so many people don't know this about me because so many people know me as a quote unquote musical theater actress this is what I love to hear when I walk into rooms and by love I mean hate I, it's, it's just like, well, what do you, what do you think? It's, if you're in musical theater, you, you not only have to act brilliantly, but then you have to sing it. You have to sing the truth that you have been speaking. So it's not that you are, I mean, granted, not everyone is as strong an actor as they are a singer and vice versa, but if I were to pick what my strength is, it's acting over singing. But I have learned to make, I have learned to make, <laughs> make friends and make peace with my instrument and use it for, for what it can give me. You know, for the longest time, I was like, I lamented, I will never have, I will never be able to belt an F and a G. Like, I just, I just don't sing that way. But I, I learned that I don't have to. And that is, um, I think a lot of performers, I, tr I try to, when I'm, when I'm coaching, I try to help, um, I try to help younger performers understand that so that they get over that hump sooner because it's, it's not just about high notes. High notes are great, they're thrilling, but they can completely be empty and not mean anything. Well, this goes back to what you were saying about- <laughs> It's why I didn't understand sending the clowns till Judy Dench sang it. Well, okay. well it, it goes back to what you were saying about, yes, um, having great vocal skills is a wonderful thing. Well, I've seen people with fantastic vocal skills sing Sondheim and I don't get a sense of the song because it's just relying on vocal dexterity and not acting. And the same with Fosse Dance. And those two correlations are really um, interesting because I've often found, and I wanna get into this as well, and we'll get back to your progression with Sondheim because your next natural step was West Side Story. But the, the other thing about the, the Fosse connection and acting is uh, tied closely also to Candernet, um, which uh, if, if, if Sondheim's the pinnacle, they are right next to him in my opinion, because their lyrics are deceptively, um, it's, it's, a, it's a smile through while hiding the pain. Yeah. It's irony, it's, it's putting band-aids over uh, your bloody you know, heel and dancing anyway. Right. Um, and that's also what, what Fosse was so much about, which is why Fosse and um, Eb, Kendra and Eb were so well met. But so was your first Kendra and Eb uh, thing the spider woman yeah so this the candor and eb celebration we're sensing a theme here uh celebration yeah you want a good celebration call it tasha um, <laughs> that is true 
it, it's true. She's been at celebrations at our house. She's one of the best party guests. Um, <laughs> and and so you were part of the the Candor and Ed, uh celebration at Signature Theater, playing the Spider Woman, the titular Spider Woman in two thousand and seven. Is that when you guys? That's where we officially met. Okay. Yes. We were part of your boys. That's right. I had never had boys before. No, that's, a, that's a lie. I had I first had boys at when I was doing Carnival. Carnival yes. at the Kenny Center. Those are the first time I ever had boys. And it's something you have to get used to. It's very interesting. You have to get used to it. And, um, and we did not get to see Carnival. At least I didn't. Did you, Stephen? No, because we were doing something else. But we, we definitely knew that you were doing Carnival because the word in DC was, you have to see the show Carnival with Natasha Diaz. Yeah. I did not know that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would have told you, but I didn't have your number then. Uh, <laughs> well, were there even cell phones back then? I don't even know. No. no. Yes, there were. Yeah, you had to crank them. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But um, so it was, yeah, I mean, I, there's so much, again, what, what speaks, they're, they're, you know, the, the, the vocal line in Sondheim, the way it's written is, is an implied behavior and thought. Same thing with Fosse. There is like, he's hiding something from you or it's, he's teasing you. There is an, there is an active, there is an active thing in there that is happening that I think people often, I find, get lost in the sexiness of the line or in the beautifulness of the of the lyric or this or the or, or the song. Um, there is there is a lot of humanity that is in great movement and in great songwriting and in great lyrics and in great music. And and the point is to sing through it, not over it, or to dance it, not move it. You're supposed right. to inhabit it. And I think a lot of people get, they don't go deep enough and you just basically get a pretty foot or a pretty leg. And again, or a high note or a pretty face or whatever. And that often is enough. And we all know the difference between, you know, a performance that is enough and one that like makes you forget you're all sitting there. Right. And when I go to a theater, I want someone to make me forget I'm sitting there. <laughs> and I get sort of mad when they don't, <laughs> when, when that doesn't happen for me. So it, it is my, it is my, goal to do that when when I am in a show it is my goal to 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 sort of take people to a place whatever it is where it's like you are not here we are uh this this is really happening um and it's funny I, again this is something else I talk to my students a lot about um and even you know someone has asked me you know why why do people why are you like this force on stage why do you like you know, we can't look away from you. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't think, I hope it's not because I'm stealing focus because I'm not. That's not, if you do that, you're annoying. But I do think 
that there is a, I think there is a, to me, the most valuable thing. What is the most valuable thing that anyone can give you? Their time. Yes. And? Their attention. Yes. Yes. Am I missing something? That's it. Their money. Well, <laughs> that always helps. Yes, that helps. But if they've given their money, they're they're giving you their time and attention. Right. So they have come here willingly to give you their time and attention. And to me, that is it's not only sacred but incredibly generous. Mm-hmm. And and I I look at that as a gift that I will not squander nor forget. So wherever I am, you are giving me your time and attention. And to me, that's everything. Um, it's also, you know, time and attention are paramount. You know, people are always saying, how do we get eyeballs? How do we like sell this? How do we get people's attention? Well, in theater, like, you know, they're here to give you attention. And I think it's, it's just something I've always held sacred and, uh, I just said, I'll be damned if, if I will waste your time. Like this is intense time. This is, this is incredibly uh, calibrated and prepared time for you, for us to experience something together. So um, that's, that's generally how I, you know, approach my work. It's never, you know, I can't, I, I don't share the sentiment of like, oh, you'll just kick this out. I, I mean, like, I, it's just, I can't do it. I can't do it. And it's not that some days I don't work harder than others. I think there are some days where maybe my energy is lower, but I don't, the quality of attention, like I always have to be like, I have to go in at my top. It has to be, it just has to, because otherwise I don't see the purpose of the, of the exercise. It just it seems empty to me. If I'm not, do you know what I mean? If I'm not going to go in and this is not going to be like this exquisite, like lobster dinner for you to feast on, I don't know why we're here. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's always what you give on the stage. And uh, speaking of exquisite, like surf and turf dinners, we had this, this and um, Neb celebration where I will never forget the photo that came out the press release where there you are, there's Cheetah Rivera, um, there's her being part of this, there's you being part of this, you're playing her former role, she's in the visit. Um, you had already played uh, Cheetah, you were the, the last uh, person selected by Arthur Lawrence and Jerome Robbins to play Anita. Yeah. Um, Isn't that weird that I literally just realized that? like yeah. weeks ago and I just went oh my god wait a minute yeah because he died two years after our tour went out mm -hmm. so so how was that being in that photo shoot about to endeavor on this Neb celebration with you know Cheetah next to you you're about to take up this huge mantle of this show that's never done um like how was that you know again I don't 
I never knew like that was a big deal. Like I didn't really get that it was a big deal because I didn't understand the implication of it. Much like I didn't realize and or register that I was the last person that 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 Jerome Robbins would have ever chosen himself to say, yes, you play this role. Much like I didn't even register that I was the last person to play Susan, the real Susan on the real Tick, Tick, Boom off Broadway. It's like, we didn't make a big deal of this stuff. It was just like, yeah, it was a job. You did it. It's a great job and it's a beautiful piece, but we never just tooted our own horns this much. Right. As people do now. And for better or for worse, you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just, I guess it's just a thing. I don't know. I, it just took me a while to be like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I actually did that. <laughs> You know, and that actually was worth something. And that's actually kind of an important credit. And, um, but yeah, so, um, yeah. You don't think about it at the time because you're doing so many things that you're like, oh yeah, that was cool. What's the next thing? And it's not till years later that you're like, oh, that was really kind of a big deal. Yeah, you know, and like I said, the, the thing with Sondheim, it was just like, you know, I had, I had resigned myself saying oh I missed it you know I missed company I missed anyone can whistle I missed uh merrily we roll along I missed night music like that was all in the 70s you know and stuff and I missed it and I didn't even know about into the woods like my you know all my all my musical theater friends knew all his other stuff I just never knew it um and you know to be to be have been to have had him around during the Sondheim Festival and actually talk to him and actually be like you know mm -hmm. I'll never forget I was in the wings and I was I was like Steve Steve could you please tell him to pick up the tempo on Miller's Son I'm dying I'm just dying and he was like okay okay I'm, I'm gonna see what I can do mm -hmm. and he went and he came back and he's like hey Natasha I I, I think it's gonna work now <laughs> and of course it did work it was fantastic because. You just, you can't play that song too slow because, you know, all of those words go on one breath. All of those lyrics, it just, it has to follow your natural breath. And if you, if it goes too slow, you run out of breath too soon. Right. Well, I want to talk about another songwriter that you, yes. that lives very close in your heart. Yes. And Matt Connor. No, no, it's not. It's yeah. not Matt Connor. Yeah, well, it is though. Um, this composer uh, and songwriter, of course, you'd asked me to come and see this production many years ago, um, but also his writing, kind of very similar to Sondheim's. It does a lot of work before you even pick up the music and the 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 score because the writer is so deep and so rich in uh, conveying uh, a story and yeah. emotion. I just want you to talk a little bit about your relationship with Jacques Brel. Oh, yes. Because when I saw you and Bobby and um, Sam, was it Bela? Yeah. In Jacques Brel at Metro Stage, I've of course always heard the title Jacques Brel 
and always kind of thought, oh my God, what does that title even mean? What am I going to go see? And I don't, I'm, I'm sure you might remember after the show, I could barely speak because I was so emotionally um, exhausted, emotionally charged, emotionally present. I was just taken back because every song, the journey, um, and you've been a part of that world for quite some time. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I had, I had, I don't even remember what I had heard of it or known of it before uh, the Off-Broadway revival called me in. I, um, I think I just like everyone else, it's sort of, it's sort of been in my ether a little bit, but you know, my mom, my, my mom used to play me Charles Aznavour and like Piaf. So like, it was not really, Brel was not really their thing because, you know, my dad was like opera and she was all classical music and, um, you know, like classical music. So, so the, the pop, the musicals were not really like, you know, I think I had the, the soundtrack of West Side Story was the first thing that I had in my ether. But like Jacques Brel was something, again, that I had, it, I was too late for. Like I missed when it came out first, when it was like this big thing. So it was sort of like a little bit like a museum piece right. to me. And, and yet, because I had had in my ear all the Charles Aznavour and all of those art songs that my mom loved from Europe, from Italy, from France. Yeah, like the sensibility was like, it was like, oh, I know this along this. Like I, I know this spirit. It, it comes through me, my culture. Right. My heritage and, and my sensibility. So, I could I I I think I recognize the style right away. And when you when you started the uh, in the Jacques Brel show in New York, did you just audition? Yeah. And that ran for quite a while. It ran for a year. Wow. It ran for a year, which uh, which was sort of formidable because it was um, we were sort of sliding into the. Uh, the, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, the um, 2008, the, uh, I keep thinking resistance. Reset, recession. Recession, thank you. Uh, the recession. So it was, we were sort of sliding down to that. Um, the zipper does not exist anymore. Um, but it We was, were just talking about the zipper with Jackie Perot. Perot Donovan. Yeah, it was a fantastic theater. So much like, um, so much atmosphere you could get oh. it you could eat and get like, all the seats car. yeah all the car seats yeah the audience full of car seats yeah very very cool and it was a beautiful set really evocative um i think they did gordon did such a great uh gordon greenberg did such a great job with the concept of 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 the structure of that show with the four sort of um, I'm going to forget this word now before archetypal characters the Brel you know the sort of brooding man Bob Cuccioli the Edith Piaf sort of like you know whatever life 
Life Carries On type, the Chanteuse. Rodney Hicks was the, was the damaged, angsty young man, and I was the lost waif, the lost young woman. And, um, and how he divided up the songs and how these sort of loosely, but very, uh, but very directly loose, but, but present um, couplings and sort of weavings, sort of we, we changed all the order of everything and found our own sort of narrative in it. I know everybody sort of does that, but I found this to be particularly uh, affecting and effective at uh, communicating um, the and illuminating the, the 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 core of each piece and as it relates as they all relate to one another uh, in the arc of the whole. So um, and 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 then it's so interesting that doing it here, I know that it's funny. I had never, I never felt like I could have the authority with any piece like I did with this, but I was like, I want to graduate from the material that I did because I did it. Great. You've done a, when you've done, when you've excavated emotionally those songs for that long, it's like, yeah, I want to look through like I want new digging sites, you know? And so we came up with a different, a different uh, through line for me, which was a mix of what I did and what Gay did. And Bela took some, took completely different, uh, a different track than I had off Broadway. Interesting. Um, yeah. And it was, and it was, and Matt, Matt did such a great, oh my God, it's just Matt did the best staging for it. And the lighting was just, it was magical. It was magical. And um, uh, I think the band, Metro Stages band was led by Jenny Cartney at the-, at the right, 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 right. Killing her hands because that score for the pianist is an absolute murder. It's murder. Um, I think Eric Schwekar, who was our off-Broadway uh, musical director, I think the piano tuner was there literally every other week. Yeah. Because he kills the piano. Yeah. I mean, he would just... I mean, he would literally just break the piano. <laughs> um, and uh, which was fantastic. I mean, he was worth the price of admission alone. Um, and... For the middle class, he actually came out from behind the piano and had the nerve to come out of there with a squeeze box and then play that. Wow. Is the, isn't Jacques Brel one of the scores that you get and it's like a little bit of like chicken scratch? Yes. It's, it's chicken it, scratch. It, it, I mean, it's written out, but like somebody did it by hand kind of thing. It is. But I think Eric... Um, Cleaned it up a bit. I think he did. And I think that that was part of what our charge was, was to be, uh, okay, so we're going to change these harmonies and we're going to decipher what the hell this is. And you will take this line, you will take this line. So I do, I do know that there is, and I don't know if there's like an off-Broadway uh, revival book, but I do know that on the printed music, it says Natasha. Oh. We rush on, you and I. 
There's like, it literally says it. Right. And I don't know where I saw that, but um, I know I didn't type it out. So <laughs> someone else had to have typed it out. But um, so this now is that version. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, that's the off-Broadway version. Yeah. Um, but but what we did in Metro Stage was incredibly uh, poetic and affecting in a completely different way. And um, and again, it was it was around uh, my sensibility, and I'm very different from gay. And I was able to incorporate, I think, a lot of the wayfishness and the sort of the dreamer. Gay was a lot more earthier, and she spoke French. Um, but I have also this ethereal quality, and I think we we built an arc at. Uh, and by the way. There was, we waited for Bobby to do it. We were like, we're not doing this without Bobby. There's just nobody else that I want to do this. Nobody. Um, wow. And so you just kind of put off things until he was, his window was ready. Yep. Yep. Um, well, before, before we move on to other things, I want to go back to passion for just a second. We haven't got to passion yet. Okay. So we haven't got to passion yet. So should we go to passion? We can. Well, I just want to talk about, um, you know, once again, seeing Jacques Brel left such a tattoo on my heart watching it, and I still remember it. You know, you know those shows that you walk out that you never forget because they just changed your, your heart. It hurt my heart. It helped my heart. It gave me heart. I just imagine it threw a, away a my heart. On a heart yes. would really be painful. Yeah. But, you know, Jacques Brel does every verb to a heart. You I'm actually think. not familiar with Jacques Brel. Really? Yeah, no, not at all. Well, when you are, you'll have a tattoo. You have a tattoo in your heart. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but another tattoo on my heart was watching Signature's Passion with you as Fosca. And let's just talk about that for a second because I think, you know, I sometime in a maybe very similar way we can maybe disagree, but I think Jacques Brel's writing giving you so much depth already in the lyrics to kind of convey i feel like sondheim kind of does the same work for an actor when he gives you the, the his lyrics yes i mean they're I, so rich i again like you know fosca came as a complete surprise and i did everything i could to avoid it for as long as possible in terms of like saying yes or no and uh i you know i just didn't uh, I was I, I I could approach that kind of poetry in this kind of European art house form of music. I didn't think that I could do it in musical theater like Sondheim, like real like music. And I uh, I didn't know that the score would fit me like a second skin. I had never felt that before um, with, with music that was for the leading lady who was sort of like, um, it's sort of like an mezzo soprano place. Right. And it just sat right in my mix so perfectly um, and right in the meat of my voice. I, I just was not expecting that. Right. Um, and uh, it took me, it took me about 
a month or two to like start to play around with the music. And then it took me three weeks in a room alone with Jacob to learn the score. And I had asked them, I said, could I please just do these sessions because I want to learn it and then have like a month or two to memorize before I come in for the start of rehearsals so that I had the music already, like I wouldn't have to think about it. And that's what I did. Um, and I'm so glad I did that because uh, I could just concentrate. I had, I had already drilled all of those wonderful impossible intervals um, that I just, I just absolutely loved. When I couldn't hear, I, I couldn't even hear Donna do them. Like there was, there was stuff that I didn't even hear her do. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what that is? Oh, wow. Like, um, and it's, and each interval was so, it just makes so much emotional sense. Uh, and I just started to, because I had so, I, I gave myself the time to really live in them. Well, as you know, you know, when um, some theaters are, are doing things and, and the show becomes, you know, a presentation of that Sondheim piece or um, an evening with that Sondheim piece, you know, it's very rare, not very rare, it, it, it does happen, but, you know, when you're living in that story and the technique and the writing and the showing of what it is uh, or who it is goes away and you just become completely immersed in that storytelling in that story and those characters it was just such a just such a beautiful evening of storytelling and um yeah it was a beautiful night well i thank you i you know, it was, it was like being, it was like my, my, my little, my, my twisted little girl, the actress dreams of being like the girl who gets to be in the bed at the end. Right. You know, like I get to be the pretty or ugly princess in this case, <laughs> um, you know, with the, with the long hair and the gown, the nightgown on the bed. It's not Clara from the Nutcracker, you know, it's Fosca in passion. Yeah. But it's, um, it is. I, I it it will be unparalleled in my life. I know that, and I can tell you that to be yeah. in the center of that music and, and in that staging. I mean, I can't explain to you what it was like for me uh, at the end when Clay was at one side of that very long stage, and that the audience was on either stage like like a like a tennis match. Yeah when Clay was on one side of the desk and everyone started walking past him, the whole company started walking past him from behind him. And I literally walked through the center of them towards him. I mean, it was like I was dying and he was at the end of my light. I mean, I, I can't, I don't even know, <laughs> I don't even know how to express what that felt like inhabit that sure and the way the theater was set up was already sort of like a us versus them uh shadow versus light situation already yes and and again like a match yeah and that's how brilliant you know matt was which is like you know 
you put Clara on one side and there's Foster on the other. And right. there's, this, there's this pull. And it's uh, really, it was just masterful. Masterful. And um, I, like I said, it will be unparalleled in my lifetime because I left this earth. Um, I felt... Uh, after watching all the clips that I could watch, even with Donna, um, when I read the book, I couldn't believe how I knew her. Yeah. She was so much more self-effacing. There was so much more laughter. There was so much more um, self-knowledge. And an awareness on her part of how she is. Yeah. Um, and yet still tempestuous and still desperate. And she still allowed herself to be as expressive as and as desperate as she felt. And that's so damn Italian. And I think so many American women playing it, I feel like, miss that. They miss that. Yeah. Because I don't know how anyone could play her as dour when you read the book. I don't know how you could play her as depressed and sort of like a ghost or like, like I've heard all of these. So, so it became my time with her became a kind of uh, crusade for her name and her soul does that make sense? Totally. Natasha, I was totally just lip reading with Stephen. I'm going to say something that might offend everyone in the room. But what is the book? I can't remember. What is the book The Passion is based on? Uh, it's based on, uh, it's Fosca. I believe it's called Fosca. It's by Tarketti. Yes, 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 yes. Yep, yep, yep. I couldn't remember because um, I haven't read it and I should. Matt, if you read it, you would be astounded because you would then see the soil from which Sondheim picked his, his narrative. Yeah. And what he left. Well, I, I want to get to two more iconic uh, roles with you. And then I want to talk about what's up next for you and what's going on currently on TV. But so West Side Story, you have done, you, as we had discussed previously, you did it again. Wasn't the configuration somewhat similar as far as like a tennis match stage for West Side Story at Signature? It was as close to the round as they could get. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, uh, really, I mean, I think they did their best with, with that. It was a little awkward that it all had to sort of escape back towards the dressing rooms. But um, I think experience because those three sides were so big and to also be able to be above right you know was uh, was must have been interesting um, yeah I mean I had done it I had done it in the round once um, but never, never like that. It was interesting. Um, it was it was interesting. Um, what was I, interesting for me in the audience was like I felt like I was looking through 
the story and it wasn't just some sort of two dimensional storytelling. It was like, you know, 5D, <laughs> it was just. That's very interesting because it took to me, it's always been so 5D, even though I'm in a proscenium setup. Right, right, right. I forget that for people, it does, maybe it did feel, you know, kind of like either stuck in time or like you said, two-dimensional because it's always like, this is it. But it must have given it, um, but I will say that there was lots, I was very pissed because I had wanted to play Sally Bowles. And to this day, I'm still sad that I was not given Sally Bowles. Mm -hmm. I've got Sally Bowles in me. I know I do. Yeah, absolutely. But I know I have Sally Bowles in me. Absolutely. And that I am dying to play. But so with West Side Story came a lot of these, uh, not secrets, but sort of like insider tips, you know, like dance captains when they do original things of Fossier or Chorus Line, they have what they call the Bible. Yep. Of like, these, this is exactly what the numbers are. This is what this person does. And this is the original choreography. Well, in the original West Side Story, I was given, uh, I was given Anita by someone who was in the original production. He was a cover, but he was still in the original production. And um, the way he gave us the story and the way he explained Anita to me and explained, illuminated these moments was so, uh, it, 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 they, he didn't so much dictate what they were as plant seeds that literally just kept sprouting for me deeper and deeper and deeper every single time I did the show because the implication of, of these archetypal moments are, they, they just go so deep. You know, uh, when, when Maria asks in code, will you go for me, Anita? You know, it's like when love comes so strong, it's like Anita seeing her love is dead, but seeing that, oh my God, no, actually Maria actually does have a real love too. And because of that, I am going to go for her. For real love, I am going to go and help her. Right. That's cut down. So the implications of those things are so big because of what it costs her to go to the Jets, of what it costs, what it, you know, um, it just, it's, just a, it's just a depth and a complexity that I never got tired of. Right. And I think that um, because it's so well-written, uh, you could get away with maybe not delving so deep, but I couldn't help it. And every time I did it, it just got, I don't know. It's always relevant, always. I know, and that's really sad, isn't it? It's like, it, it's just continually relevant. Um, yeah. I played it in, in East Germany when they tore down the wall, um, we were wearing buttons saying, stop in the hasse, stop the hate. Wow. And it's, it's to do it again here, 
just after there was all of these, I mean, I think when we did it here, the race issue was already coming back up again for some godforsaken reason. It's like someone got attacked or someone else was killed in police custody or like it was just, it just, it became again relevant and it's just exhausting and sad and um, important. Yeah. I think that um, as, as beleaguered and as uh, battered and beleaguered as theater is right now, trying to stand up from all of the in-house battering that has been going on and the reorganization, reprioritization of goals and revisioning of, of, of what our stories look like and what our stories are, I feel like like that, it is so imperative now. Theater is more imperative now than ever because we, we need to be helped to see things a certain way, other ways than how we see them. Right. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of people. Um, I did a pod, I did a podcast. I did a video uh, of, a, of a, I was, well, this is when I had time. <laughs> I hope to have some more time, but I, I have, I have, uh, I did one talk in the series that I call Tosh Talk. And I started getting very, it's because I started getting very sick of hearing people who to me have no, uh, they don't have any, it's not that people who don't have clout don't have a reason to speak or don't have merit. But I do think that people who have experience, people who are older, people who are uh, administrators and some of us, I, I wanted to hear from them what the future of theater was doing. I was tired of, of hearing people who had just graduated from college telling everybody else what they think should happen. I, I don't think that you have I think, I think a lot of those people just need to listen a lot more than they speak. Right. And that's just my, that is my, you know, I, I, I am not enough. I will never be enough. But, everyone wants to heard, but everyone wants to be heard, but not everyone wants to listen. No. And everybody is prescriptive and telling everybody else what to do. And I really, really chafe at that. I have a huge problem with that. I'm, I'm a big champion and, and big advocate for diversity. Um, I think that's great. Uh, I never saw myself as anything else but a brunette, but apparently I am. Um, again, I talk about this too, and nobody wants to hear about this too, but um, you know, I didn't get seen for a lot of things because my last name is Diaz, but nobody asked me what my relationship to my ethnicity is. Because if they had, I would have said, I actually am more Italian. I feel much more Italian um, and I don't speak Spanish. So I don't know what you think. You know, nobody asked me. So you're just putting a label on me. You're also putting a, a supposition on me. And it's not that I'm not proud of my heritage. I just don't identify with it as my core, but nobody asked. Right. Nobody asked. 
So I've walked through half my career being typecast because nobody asked. And I will, I will, I couldn't believe that just the other day or just the other week, someone said, you know, what do you call yourself? And I went, oh my God, thank you for asking. Tosh, are you still there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. yes. We got you back. Go ahead. Yeah. I said, thank you for asking. Because, you know, again, I'll, I'm all about representation. It's very important. But it's depending on the piece, depending on the role. I am not here to, it's, I have a taste. I have, I look at myself in a certain way. And my ethnicity is a color that I can choose. But it is not the core of me. Right. And that's just for me. I'm not saying that's that's not that's not how other people should be. But that's not how I am with my relationship because in my house, an opera singer and a ballerina, it was a Puerto Rican opera singer and, a, and an Italian ballerina. It wasn't, oh, you're a Puerto Rican opera singer. It was, do you speak Verdi? Right. Do you speak Puccini? Do you speak Swan Lake? Okay, well then that's the language we speak. Right. Ethnicity had nothing to do with it. So when I went into my profession and I started not being, you know, I realized I kept getting shuffled into a lane. And I was like, but this is not, I don't, I don't even speak Spanish. Like, what is this? So it's very interesting what's happening now. Because now, uh, for better or for worse, I'm getting afforded an audience. Uh, and again, all I ever wanted, I, and again, differently from what's, what I hear a lot of people saying, I'm not saying give me roles. Unlike a lot of people, you need to hire people of this color and this creed to do this job. You need to do this. People don't need to do anything. People need to have their own businesses, their own shows, their own message, and they need to take it themselves. The people who are, who are telling other people what to do, I have a huge problem with that. Because if you have a problem with that show, then you, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, go home and you write your In the Heights. Right. You do your own show. You open your own company and you take care of your own business. You know, I think that we are all in need of much more patience and uh, an openness in learning how to dialogue about these things. Because for me, it's incredibly uh, self-righteous, ugly and self-righteous to say, you need to give me this job or you need to give this job to the, no, you don't. In my estimation, all I believe is that the best artists get the job. Right. The whole point of this was to not say, oh, that's not going to go to a white person. I would like the job to go to the best vessel. To tell that story. To tell that story, to inhabit that character and their complexities. Right. All I ever wanted, all I personally ever wanted was a chance to show Look at how I can hold this character for you. 
And you did just that in the last character I want to talk to you about in every little step, your audition for Cassie. Yes, Cassie. <laughs> well, this is this is a one of we we were talking about chorus line the other night with Miss Mary Robert. Yep. Um we we have been friends for, you know, umpty bump years, but one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had with you was sitting next to you in the movie theater watching this. And it was like, it was like being in pop-up video. Remember that? Yes. Cause you were telling me little, like, it was like I had a director commentary like next uh, to me. Yes. John Waters during Hairspray. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an interesting eye-opening conversation. Um, and there's so many people these years later who say the wrong choice was made by the end. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, is that a shock to you? Well, I uh, kind of. Well, I thought you danced your heart out and sung your heart out for Cassie. Um, and was very proud of my friend sitting next to you and still am every single day. But that, that was such a, an odd, strange experience. It must have been for you surreal to watch. Yes, it was because also behind all that stuff, what you didn't see was uh, all of the flights that I took back and forth from LA paid for by myself. Um, all of the, the, the 12 pounds that I lost that they asked me to lose. Um, it was like, you know, there's, there's little things that you do, um, that I think a lot of people who go to New York and who, uh, at least at that time, you know, they're like, yeah, this is whole, this is all part of the, I am definitely not part of the, you are enough. You are so enough generation. My, I am part of the, you will never be good enough. Right. You can always be better. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. It's not that you will be, you will never be good enough. So, so, you know, you would go run yourself ragged and, and, and bloody. It is, you can always do better. You can always make that turn more effortless. You can always make a, make a moment more deep, less artificial. You can always reach higher. And I, to me, that is just a more, um, I think that's much more the heart of an artist, to be honest. Um, it's the heart of an athlete. Athletes are always trying to be faster, stronger, higher, deeper, whatever it is. Um, I think if you're too satisfied with yourself, you won't grow. And I think that there's, um, that's just my take. I think you will eventually write a book called Higher. <laughs> uh, well, my sister just came out with a song called Higher. Okay, so we've got now uh, a song that we can put in your movie. Yes, can you go higher? Yes, higher. Um, yes. Speaking of going higher and reaching more people than ever, you're doing a lot of TV work now. Can you tell us about this latest character? Oh, Stevie, it's only taken my entire life to, you know, starting going to Pier 72, whatever the hell it's called, uh, in New York, going to all these Law & Orders, auditions and playing the crackhead and playing uh, you know the drug addict or the whatever to you know and the, or the crying mother I graduated to the crying mother and then I I just all my life I knew that I was like I really want to be that like 
that's sort of like a very intelligent, slightly um, slightly dissatisfied like cop or detective or something's, you know, she's got a chip on her shoulder or she's too smart for her own good or whatever it is. And I, because thank you, thank you, DGRW, my new agents who, yes. who signed with me the day they closed the NBA, March 11th, 2020. As the world was falling apart, my world literally came to life in ways that I had never, I didn't know that representation could be like this. I had a busier year during the pandemic than I have ever had. I did more self-tapes. I did more of, uh, well, I got back on TV after 10 years of not being on it. Wow. And I- This is FBI? This is FBI. Okay. I didn't know, you know, like I worked on my self-tape game. I worked on just being in front of a camera because I've, I've been on TV before. But, you know, these people who, and this is what I've realized every time I go back on FBI is like Missy Peregrim and Zico Zaki, like they're, they're so good at it because they belong there and they're TV stars, but they do it every day. Right. You know, so they know, they get to know themselves. And the first time I was on, I actually asked, no, lies. The second time I was on, I asked Zico Zaki, the guy who plays um, OA, what you know i asked him a question i said you know what's so weird because I, I to me the first time i was on the camera was was in front of me i was talking to them but they were behind me so what i did stupidly i kept looking back at them which means i turned away from my audience right and so i said so and I can, and I, I looked at myself in this, you know, in the scene. Nobody would really notice these things because it's not like, you know, people say, "Oh, you're great," you know, whatever. And it was fine, but like I learned these little things, and I said, "So what do you do?" And he said, "You know, what's so funny is that I've had times where I literally cannot hear the person in front of me, but I don't expect him to look back because the camera is on him." Right. So they are, con he's like, if I can't hear you, then it's just like, whatever, I'll just guess. <laughs> Seriously, so it's not like theater at all. It's not like you need to get thrown the line, boom, and it has to hit you. It's like, no, he threw it at the camera. I should have thrown it at the camera. So I did it. So this time when I, I again, I did the same thing because I'm a cop. So I'm showing them my crime scene. So I'm leading them through it. And so the same thing happened. I was in front of them. I didn't look back this time because the camera's on me. I was like, so I did that right. <laughs> so little things like that. So like, you know, but it's, um, you know, I, and I'm learning a lot doing self tapes. It's very interesting. It definitely is an art. Um, and self-tape is its own little private hell. But I'll tell you what, it is, I would not go back to the way it was used, the things used to be. Right. When you'd have to go all the way to the casting office 
down on Prince Street and Broadway. Like, you know, I just, and then to have that crappy lighting and to not be able to see what you look like or practice it or anything. I mean, what, what you, what, what I've been given, what we're given now that, that it's in our hands, you really get to decide what they see. Right. And you get to take, you know, and I, and I'm, Dare, dare I say, I'm getting a little better at it. Like I'm getting better. I'm a little quicker. Yeah. Yet, like I have my, I have my little system. I also know when something is, is good when it's not, but I'm still looking, I'm still discovering bad habits that I do. Like even just, I just did a tape on, uh, on Saturday night. Oh my God. And it was just a last minute thing. And I was like, Oh my God, look at me. I'm literally pulling my skin on my face in frustration. But on camera, it's like, what are you doing to your face? <laughs> like, what are you doing? That's awful. Why would you pull the skin on your face like that? So I went, Oh, so I can check myself and say, let's not do that. Right. Let's maybe take the tension somewhere else. So you're in your own class. Well, yes. And it's also, like you're, you're now the teacher and the student, you know, in that, those situations. But you, you get a chance to then go back and say, okay, let's do it again. Well, because what I, because honestly, I cheat. I yeah. cheat and I don't care how, I don't care that I cheat because it's gotten me work. So I'm going to keep doing it because by the time I get the job, they can't fire me because I've already gotten the job. Right. I cheat. And the way I cheat is my phone turns into my monitor. Mm. So I don't do it with the camera facing me. I do it with the face facing me. Mm. I use the front facing camera. Right. So I'm literally looking at, I'm looking at myself in the tape. Right. You heard the secret here. <laughs> you heard it. And I'm telling you, some people, they're just like, oh, that would be way too distracting. But for me, it's so helpful because right. it, it, it reins me in just enough so that I can see and paint what I want. I'm a dancer, right? So I'm used to the mirror. That's all you ever needed. That's all I ever needed, <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, so these little tricks and these little things, or it's, you know, I try to make it, it's, it's a process and I think I'm getting good at it, at least good enough for, for me. Um, and it's getting me work. It's getting me in rooms. Um, and uh, it's very exciting. And um, I, I continue to have a lot of auditions right now and I'm very blessed. Um, and you've got Our Town coming up at Shakespeare Theater. I do indeed. Yes. Uh, which got postponed. So what, what are the dates on that for people who want to come see you? Uh, it starts rehearsals April 11th and it runs uh, for a month and, and goes, uh, it ends June 11th. It probably opens around May, mid-May somewhere. Yes, yes, that's right. And if people want to follow you, Tasha, NatashaDiaz.com, right? Yes, I have a brand new website, which I put a lot of effort into. So please, please, please go to my website. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Um, it was really, uh, it's so hard to stay with, you know, to, 
but you really do know when things are outdated, they're out of date and you just need a very simple one. And this one really just gets to the point. There's lots of clips. You can follow me on Instagram, LadyDiaz777. Um, I'm at Natasha Diaz on Twitter. Um, I'm less on that, uh, depending. But um, yeah, everything you need to know is on the website. You can also look up shows and reviews uh, and pictures. Beautiful pictures. Um, thank you. That's another thing. That's like, I had never, ever so many of these millennials and gen z's or whatever they are gen whatever they're all like the, i said where are all these people getting their pictures taken yeah. jesus i like i never i had never ever gone for a portrait shoot ever and like i think that i went once and it was just the worst experience of my life i hated having a picture taken but now it's like you know what I think it's okay to like it now. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think, can I please arrive now? Can I please <laughs> get a moment in my life where I'm like feeling myself just a little? Can I have, can I just, can I let myself feel myself just a little? Absolutely. And I think you've well, arrived being on uh, the Connor and Smith podcast show. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know. And again, I realize this is not, everybody's like, yes, queen, yes. Everyone's so like, but I don't know. I just, it just, I was never so like, I don't know. I never felt like a queen in terms of like, I'm all together. Like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm gonna do this. And there's so much self-assurance around me. And I think, wow, you're you're so like together. You're, everybody seems so like together and like they know what they're doing. And I just was never that, um, I don't know, never that self-assured. I was on stage. Well, you that's, know, that's you know, that's quite apparent. And I, I, I think it's, it's amazing um, the outward perception of, of what, you yeah. know, people perceive of you versus what, you know, you feel. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it's kind of insane. And it's actually always been the dichotomy of that has been so polar opposite. It's, it's a little, uh, it's a little uh, shocking. Um, You'll see this all in the movie higher. Yes. <laughs> That's Coming it. out real soon. Come on. I mean, I want to play you. I wish I could play. Happy, I mean, higher is like, Higher is Katya. My sister has my sister and her husband are break out the crazy um, and break out the crazy.com. Uh, they are an unbelievable song duo. And as a matter of fact, he did, we, we, all three of us did the arrangement of In Mi Viejo San Juan that we sang for my father on the Kennedy Center Honors. Yes. What? Yeah. What a beautiful, beautiful tribute. Oh my God! It was just. It just seemed wow. like it was, uh, uh, just of another world. All the stars and the events. It was just like, like yeah, like something, a constellation that was, I don't know, and yet at the same time it felt so down to earth. Right. Like oh yeah, Letterman, what's up? You know. Well, and for, and for you and your sister to be able to perform for your father, yeah. I mean, who can, who can, who gets to say that? I don't know. And it's, it was kind of crazy. And to, 
to to be there and then to do the to do the mic check and to look up at the scrim behind us and to see they had plastered a huge image of Anita of me as Anita right behind me with these huge pictures of me singing with like pictures of us when we were little. Oh. Pictures of my parents when they came to see my show at 54 Below. <laughs> like, what? And as we came off stage from the performance, because the broadcast slashed our song from three minutes to 45 seconds. Wow. When we got off the stage, Cheetah Rivera was flung her, all, she was right there in the wings because she, of course, announced my father's section. Mm -hmm. She didn't even know all this, all these years that she knew me and that I was her successor. She never knew that that was my dad. Oh, wow. So this was an incredible thing also because it was like a solidarity thing. Right. And, you know, I have never been recognized in any Cheetah Rivera tribute, any West Side Story thing. It's like, Nobody ever knew I played Anita. Right. And now, now, it's like I stood on a stage with Cheetah. She flung her arms open. She was like, oh, my God, Natasha. Oh, my God. She was crying. She was weeping. Weeping. And she could see the picture of me, of that Anita kick, that I had finally wanted one just like she had. That was Chris Mueller, right? That was Chris Mueller's shot. Perfect. Gorgeous. Shout out Chris Mueller. Shout out Chris Mueller. And by the way, today, you know how Facebook does those like, does those like anniversary things? Yeah. Today, Facebook reminded me that someone I performed with in the year 2000, who doesn't even act anymore, saw that image and had somebody paint it. It's wow. in his house. Wow. Go look on my Facebook page. It wow, that's crazy and amazing. And he literally was like, Natasha, I look at this every day and I love it and it's you. And I was like, that's insane. <laughs> and, wow. another, and another friend of mine did, did a, a rendering of it, which I haven't even framed yet, in puntalism. Wow. Literally with dots. I was just, I mean, like, 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 like George freaking Surratt. You're kidding me. Nope. His name is Martin and he is uh, a choreographer. He was also one of the original, like, you know, eighties, eighties dancers. Those, those men were freaking incredible. Um, Martin Cespedes is his name. And he's in Chicago, I believe. Yeah. And he's also an incredible artist. And he did this unbelievable, unbelievable. Wow. And he surprised me with it. And I just, I just wept. That's I mean, so beautiful. Yeah. I just wept. Um, to me, to me, artists like you guys and other people who do many other things other than do stage are, are the, are the true threats because that is, I mean, I'm useless. I can't draw. I can't paint. I can't. You can cook. Well, some things. <laughs> but you know what I mean? it's like it's like I think that's the that's the true 
that's that's a true artist on 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 many different levels. My mother is my mother lives like a ballerina. She doesn't even have to dance. She lives like a ballerina. Yeah. With the precision and discipline and artistry and care and you know that's when living is an art that's to me that is that is the exceptional uh that's what is exceptional Ritas, we could talk about a million things for the rest of the night but i just i want to ask you one last thing yeah. about katia your sister yes i you know what now that you've mentioned this about higher I, i'm just thinking I mean, I would love to like have this like a, a thing about her tonight with this new song, but I'm wondering if I could reach, I wonder if I should reach out to her and see if her and uh, what's his, his name? Chris. Would you think him and her and Chris would want to talk about Hire on maybe the podcast? Absolutely. Maybe we could do a whole big thing about their music and their writing and just talk about all that stuff. Oh my God. They would love it. And by the way, it's like, it is, it is such a cause right now that songwriters, I mean, the, the breadth also of their style writing. I mean, they write in every different style you can imagine. Um, and it's, it's part of what they're, it's why their name, they named themselves Break Out the Crazy is that they're, they don't just write, um, you know, pop or, uh, or rap. I mean, they write anything. Right. And that just is not, that's just not regular. That is just not, a, that is not a regular uh, thing that a lot of writers, not a facet that a lot of writers have. And Chris is a producer and he produces, I mean, we came up with that, we came up with that arrangement of En Mi Viejo San Juan. And they are, I mean, the level of stuff, he, they've toured with Alejandro Sanz and look, they come from, a bunch of different experiential backgrounds, but what they do is so complex and so sticky and so cool. And so um, I, I think I think people would love to hear about how they do it. And um, because of, you know, lifting up original music, Matt, is it's like original theater. It's like, it's like new, new voices. It's important. Yeah. Um, and all of these people that pray on artists like Spotify, you know what I mean? It's like, you don't realize that it's like a lot of the people that's, it's, it's all a scam. Right. It's all a scam. And they're all about like, if you like our music, just listen and share. Right. And for 99 cents, you can have this banging ass tune. Yeah. We'll have to speak to them. We'll we'll be in touch. Yeah, we will. Well, thank you, Natasha, for a lovely, beautiful, beautiful. We, we adore everything that you do. Oh, we God. adore everything that you cook. We can't wait to see you again. We can't wait to see you again. Yes. Congratulations on everything. Thank you. And um, you, guys, you you guys are so beautiful. You're always have. You're always curious, and always. Um, you do your research, you have your, I think to be curious, it, you know, it, about other people and really um, mind them for their experiences is such a beautiful thing. And I just hey, love you guys are doing this. I love be, it. It's so great. Be, be an artist with a mission and a purpose. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Good night, beautiful. We love you. Love you too. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. 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 
thank you for spending time with us, Natasha. We really appreciate that. Um, it was a really in-depth discussion on so much of your career, and we could have talked for two more hours mm -hmm. about so much the Candy Center, and we could, we didn't really delve a whole lot into the movie of, of a course line. We could have gone on for that forever. Yeah. But we appreciate your time nonetheless. Thank you for sharing the space with us. Yes, and best of luck for everything that's exciting happening for you in your world right now. Our town coming up at Shakespeare Theater. Check it out. That's right. And if you want to learn more about us, you can follow us at www.connorsmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an ER. You can follow us on TikTok and Facebook under Connor and Smith. Again, with an ER, please rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. really helps us out a lot. You can share this wherever you share things. Post it in your posty places, wherever you want to throw this to your neighbor. Uh, pass it in a note in study hall. Whatever you want to do, uh, we appreciate it. And um, we are at the penultimate episode of uh, season four. We have one more. Then we're on to season five, and that's a different story. That's going to be going back, catching up with alumni from our college, Shenandoah University. Season five, season five, ooh, 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 season five. And uh, we are going to start that uh, later this week, and it's going to be a different ball game. It's going to be really exciting talking to people we haven't talked to in some some instances two decades so stay tuned for that but uh thank you all for listening we appreciate you and we'll see you next time bye